That's right, football and forward powered by the Inside the Bird Podcast. The newest episode dropped this morning. And joining us right now on the Boardwalk Hotline, Hotline, as he does every Monday here on the Sports Bash. Of course, Josh Hennig filling in for Mike Yellow with Hunter Brody here on 97.3 ESPN. The one only Jeff Mosher joins us. Jeff, how are you doing this Monday? I'm doing great, fellas. Hope you guys are, are well. I think uh, I've been listening to the show. And man, Hunt, did Hunter bring up a great kind of um, pros and cons type scenario? Or maybe there was you, Josh, who said that uh, a Kardashian has ruined every man that, that was he's me. ever been with. But that was have, definitely me. Yeah, oh, that was you. You got to ask, though, was it worth it, though? I mean, <laughs> they are Kardashians, and, and they uh, they look good. So uh, you, you do wonder, like, is it worth giving your life away no. and potentially going yes. crazy no. for, yes. for a few years with a Kardashian? Yes. No, because because they're not the only beautiful women in the world. They're not the only women who are worth dating in the world. There are plenty of beautiful, wonderful women who will not destroy your life. You tell him, Josh. Yeah, but you're open. Oh, first of all, that just that that narrows the question down to the obvious. Like, none of us are ever going to date or marry a Kardashian. I mean, some of us, like myself, are already married. But the point is, just to look at it through the prism of you have an opportunity to be with a Kardashian. It doesn't mean that if you say no, Josh, that you get to go be with, uh, you know, Selma Hayek afterward or anything like that. It's simply a question of you have an opportunity have a relationship with a Kardashian, a once-in-a-lifetime deal there, do you take it and reap the benefits knowing that the end result will be bad for you, but on the way to that being bad, you may have some tremendous uh, peaks, if you will. This is <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, th- this is exactly what happens when the Eagles don't pull the trigger on Carson Wentz. We are now starting <laughs> football at four with if we will or should date a Kardashian. <laughs> I love it. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, spe- so speaking of Carson Wentz, Jeff, um, he has not been <laughs> traded as of this moment. Uh, I thought an interesting point. I want to bring it up to you. Uh, Jeff Darlington was on ESPN radio this morning and said that he believes that the deadline for the Eagles is March 19th. I find that interesting because Adam Kaplan said that also on Friday that the Eagles have until a certain point where that bonus roster bonus kicks in. So is it fair to say that the Eagles are going to take their time as things look right now to get the right deal? I think technically, Josh, they have that deadline because you're cor- the correct. it's correct to say that a certain amount of money uh, kicks in for the Eagles that would be guaranteed for them that wouldn't be if they were able to make a trade and the other team would have to take care of that. However, I don't think that that's means we should assume that Howie Roseman is fine waiting until that deadline to do it because you're talking about um, March 19th. You're talking about free agency, uh, I guess, being underway already at that point by a few days or maybe going to be a few days afterward. And Carson Wentz is one of several uh, players on the roster, guys, that their futures have to be kind of reconciled here. And there's a lot of moves that the Eagles need to make to become cap compliant, just to become cap compliant. I mean, we've, we've talked about this. This is going to be a crossroads offseason. There's a lot of different players who will either have to have contracts extended to lower their cap numbers or will have to be sent away in a trade, like potentially Zach Ertz, maybe some other guys. There'll have to be some guys who are cut for, for cap casualty reasons. So I don't think that he can have this hanging over them for the next month and a half. I, I honestly think that there is 
uh, an impetus for Howie Roseman to have to do this sooner than later so that he can get on with the rest of the uh, you know roster architecture that he's going to have to deal with. How do you think the league right now values Carson Wentz? Could we open up the show kind of talking about what else is out there? What other moves can these organizations make if they want to go after a different quarterback not named Carson Wentz? Where do you think he stands compared to some of the other guys available right now? Well, I think there's no question, Hunter, that there is a certain question mark about what Carson Wentz is going to be going forward coming off of a bad year. I don't think that he's quote-unquote damaged goods. Uh, I don't think, though, that you're you're going to get the same kind of Matthew Stafford Hall because even if you compare their numbers and they're somewhat similar throughout their career, the bottom line is Matthew Stafford was not benched, and it wasn't just this last year, and I don't think he's had a year as uh, bad as Carson Wentz just had. So there is a little bit of buyer beware out there with are we going to be able to get Carson Wentz back to being what he was anytime between 2017 and 2019, somewhere. In there, And I think some teams, I think the Colts feel that they have the infrastructure to be able to do that. Obviously, they have Frank Reich there. Obviously, they have Press Taylor there. They have a great offensive line. They have a really good general manager. They have ample cap space to the point where they could bring in Carson Wentz and still make moves to put weaponry around him. And so I'm sure in their offices, they're feeling pretty confident about what they could do to rebuild Carson Wentz if they're able to get their hands on him. But just like every other team, they can't be positive of that. So this is why we're at where we are, because there's all, there's, there's certainly, I guess this is uh, uh, the risk-reward deal. There's high risk, there's high reward. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Jeff, you know, when you think about the high-risk, high-reward, but where does that high-risk, high-reward compare to other quarterbacks who are available? You know, you have guys out there like, Matt Ryan, there's speculation Jimmy Garoppolo is getting traded, speculation Sam Darnold will get traded, you know, Mitch mm-hmm. Trubisky is a free agent. So where does Wentz's high risk, high reward compare to those guys? Well, you know, just from, from just speaking to people around the league uh, over the last few years about where Carson, how, how they viewed Carson compared to other quarterbacks, um, certainly I think he compared favorably to some of those names you mentioned because of the physical tools that he had, everybody saw in 2018, what he was been able to do. I think that it's fair to say that he is not the same uh, athlete that he was back then because of the injuries that he's had. And so that's why we're talking about him right now and uh, a deal yet to be consummated and, and the risk that's involved. I do believe so that people still look at him as a player with the right tools around him is an accurate quarterback, uh, is a, is, has a, likes to drive the ball, um, can put them, can make any type of throw in the NFL and uh, can lead a team. I still think that he's viewed that way. And, you know, you look at some of the other guys that you mentioned that are out there. Uh, Sam Darnold was out there, hasn't really lived up to being a, a top five pick, I think, what he was. Um, there's no playoffs. And obviously there's been um, not a, a team built around him that's really good. But I think there's some question marks on, on what his ceiling is compared to what Carson Wentz's ceiling could be. Uh, Marcus Mariota was a starter for a while and uh, did not, you know, really do anything. I think he went to the playoffs once, but he didn't really establish himself as an elite quarterback. He did look good uh, in his short amount of time there backing up Derek Carr when he had to play. And so there'll probably be some interest in him. Same thing with Garoppolo, a guy who had was in the Super Bowl two years ago, but uh, obviously very injured last year. Uh, a guy who, when he plays well, you can see a lot of talent 
Um, but you don't see it consistently, game in, game out. And, of course, the injuries last year really hurt him. So I don't want to say it's all just a mixed bag because each quarterback has his own strengths and weaknesses here. But I, I, I sense that people don't forget that what Carson Wentz was able to do in 2017 and then the way he worked himself back to be ready in 2018. I know there's a lot of debate about Carson Wentz's win-loss record in 2018 and 2019, but his statistics were pretty good. I mean, I think he had passer ratings over 90 uh, in each of those years. And if you even go back to last year, you know, 4,000 yards uh, without a, a receiver who went 1,000 a, a yards. I mean, he, he did some things, especially in December there, that make you realize what he can be when he's consistently playing well. We brought up Zach Ertz in a trade package before. Reports over the weekend mentioned maybe Andre Dillard in a similar package-type deal. Have you heard anything about that? And if not, what is your uh, thoughts on that possibility? So I haven't heard that. doesn't mean it's, it hasn't been discussed, but I personally haven't heard it. My my personal thoughts on that is that I think that they should keep Andre Dillard. I mean, unless he becomes the, a sweetener for a deal they can't turn up. I mean, you know, I, you, the report was, what, Zach Ertz and Dillard for something? Yes. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to know what that something is, right, right in order course. to really be able to, to comment and, on it. And but, even speculated I, maybe it, even all three of them, like Wentz, Ertz, and Andre Dillard in the same deal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if you're talking about getting high for uh, first round or second round picks back, maybe I understand that. But to me, I think depth on the offensive line is something that's critical for this team. And although I would say going into OTAs, I think Jordan Mailata, should, it should be left tackle for Jordan Mailata to lose. There's no reason why you wouldn't want to have Andre Dillard with all that talent that he does have, um, at least as your top backup. Maybe you can cross train him at right tackle especially if he's not going to be a starter. He has the time then to be cross-trained. I just don't think that you should give up uh, on him just as a throw-in because for all that he that we saw his weaknesses, like he needed to get stronger, he needed to get tougher. I know there was question marks about that even going into last year before his injury. It's hard to find a guy with that size and that kind of dancing bare footwork that he had. His, his pass protection skills, his footwork um, especially with speed rushers, not necessarily power rushers, but, but speed edge rushers is just not something that you see in guys every day. That's why he was a first-round pick. And I would just like to see Jeff Stoutland have the opportunity to work with him a little bit more with him being healthy. And it's a bonus that you have Mylotta there to be able to play left tackle and Lane Johnson at right tackle. But as we've seen, injuries have really hit this team hard over the last few years. I just think that there's an opportunity there to have a really good uh, backup for depth if he can't crack the starting lineup. So I just wouldn't trade him away for, for a bag of, you know, footballs or anything like that or a, or a throw-in. Jeff Mosher joining us here at Football and Ford, powered by the Inside of Birds podcast. You can follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Mosher NFL. Check out the latest edition of the Inside of Birds podcast that dropped this morning. Mosher and Kaplan on there getting more into the Eagles coaching staff and more. Jeff, talking about specifically the trade situations, if we could get over to Zach Ertz, there's a speculation out there that Ertz, as Bros mentioned, could be traded with Dillard, could be traded separately, could be packaged with Wentz. You know, what makes Ertz a tradable piece aside from the fact of who he is? Well, I think what makes him a tradable piece is that, you know, how many really good tight ends who are capable of getting you 800 or more yards and 50 or more 
uh, receptions are out there. I mean, there's obviously the top four or five, which is Kelsey, which is Darren Waller, which is um, George Kittle when healthy. Uh, who else am I missing there? I'm sure there, there's someone who, who's on that list that, oh, Mark Andrews from, from the Ravens. But after the top five, I mean, there's, there's a pretty big drop-off. Now, if the evaluation on, on Zach Ertz is that he's not what he was, but he can still get you 40 to 50 catches, 600 to 800 yards. His contract's pretty favorable right now. It's one of the reasons why he's, he's able to be traded. And there are teams that you're seeing more and more are relying on those two tight end formations, whether it's the 49ers, whether it's the Ravens, uh, a couple other teams. Uh, I think the Patriots, obviously we know that. And all those, uh, I think the Dolphins would probably be into that more with Brian Flores. There's just teams that, that like to use two tight ends and one might be a blocker and, one might be a pass catcher. I mean, you saw what Trey Burton got from the Bears a couple of years ago as a free agent. And Trey Burton has never had a season anywhere near, to my knowledge, anything that Zach Ertz ever had. Now, maybe that was a mistake by the Bears. But the point is, people are always looking to add talent. And I think that Ertz is the type of player that a, a good established team, you know, not a rebuilding team, like a veteran team that really likes to use the tight ends, could bring in at a, at a pretty decent number there and help fortify the offense as it tries to win a Super Bowl. When looking at his production last year, do you think that that was more because of the physical injury? How much do you think played into the contract situation, knowing that this is coming down to an end, knowing just the dysfunction involved as well? Would you say that maybe that had more to do with it than just the physical side of things? Yeah, that's a great question, Hunter, because sometimes we've seen that where a guy in a bad mindset or a bad situation mentally where he's at, his environment impacts the play. Because when you when I watched Tape of Hurts uh, last year, I remember thinking he looked a little bit slower. He looked less dynamic. Something wasn't right there. I mean, there were times he was open and Carson Wentz didn't see him as much. So that was on Carson too. But there were also just times where, he, to me, he looked like he was not the uh, – the polished route runner and, and the guy who just knows how to get open in, in every situation that he used to be. But that was early, and then he got hurt. So that, that marred a lot of his season last year, too. There's what, what talent evaluators and scouts and people who watch tape would have to decide is, you know, did they see something that is so alarming that they feel he's not even anywhere near what he used to be? Or are they able to kind of understand the environment, the circumstances, and in our culture with maybe either a new deal or something done, a version around him, that he will go, he will look a little bit more dynamic than he was uh, the year before when he just was clearly going through some things because he's not that old and, and tight ends can play in this league for quite a while. You know, you've seen Antonio Gates and Tony Gonzalez and several other guys, Heath Miller. I mean, guys play for a while at that position. Uh, there's really no reason why, why Zach can't still be a really effective tight end. He may not be a, you know, 70 catch thousand yard guy anymore, but he should still be a pretty good tight end. Jeff Mosher joining us football at Ford powered by the inside of birds podcast. Of course, every Monday and Wednesday, Jeff joins the show here on 97, three Adam Kaplan on Fridays. Andrew check will be in here tomorrow with Mike Gell back in tomorrow here on 973 ESPN, Josh Henning, filling in on the sports bash. Jeff, one of the things also this offseason we got to figure out for the Eagles, because with the new coaching staff, you and Adam talked about this on the podcast, how does everything fit in with the new offense and defense? So if we're going to assume that Zach Ertz is gone, if we're going to assume 
Carson Wentz is gone. What does the offense look like going into 2021 without those guys in it? Well, I think, and something Adam and I addressed is that this has to be the year that you see development and elevated play out of wide receivers. There's no question about it. And I even went as far to say it becomes a referendum on the entire organization from their talent acquisition to their coaching to their uh, development overall. If wide receivers do not take a step up, first of all, you look at Nick Sirianni, the new coach. He was a wide receiver, right? So, I mean, that's his pedigree. That's his position. Kevin Petulo, that he brought in as his pass game specialist, was a quarterback to start off his uh, high school and college career and then moved to wide receiver. So he's played wide receiver in college. And Aaron Moorhead, retained from the prior staff, played wide receiver for the Colts for a couple of years in the NFL. That's three guys on the offensive staff who have played the position. And I said, that reminds me of when Carson Wentz got drafted and he had three guys. He had Frank Reich, he had John Filippo, and he had, uh, of course, Doug Peterson, like that quarterback cocoon that we all talked about. So if this coaching staff can't make these wide receivers play better, more consistently, you can't have a, a four-game stretch like Travis Fulgham have and then completely disappear. Um, if they can't get these guys, tap into the, the speed that John Hightower has and, and Quez Watkins, and certainly maybe they might draft a wider receiver or two as well. If they can't develop this wide receiver position, then maybe these aren't the right coaches, and certainly you'll have to continue to uh, – come down on on Howie Roseman for being the one who brings these wide receivers in and question everything about it because the the environment should be one in which wide receivers here flourish. And if you listen to Nick Sirianni, his philosophy, what he's said in videos before, is to try to get the ball in the hands of his most dynamic playmakers within five to ten yards. He likes to get these guys over the middle, in space, so that they can make yards after the catch, and he likes to design schemes that enable him to do that. So if none of this, if we're talking at the end of the year about the wide receivers being a failure, then it's a failure on both the coaching staff and the people who are responsible for acquiring wide receiver talent. Something Adam brought up to us on Friday was the lack of assistant positional coaches. How do you view that? You know, I don't think that that's as in some cases. I think it's a big deal. Like, um, take the secondary. There's a lot of. I mean, you're you're going to go into camp and you're going to have like six cornerbacks and, and seven safeties. Of course, they're not all going to make it, but that's how many you have before you whittle it down. Right now, you have one defensive backs coach, and that's uh, Denard Wilson, right? Denard Wilson from the Jets, who came over to be the defensive backs coach here. Jay Valai was supposed to be the assistant, and I'm, I assume one was going to you know handle safeties, the other would handle corners. Um, and now that Jay Valai has left for his fourth job in, in about three months, they don't. They have yet to say that there's going to be an assistant at that position. Well, that's a lot of pressure on Denard Wilson to have 13 or 14 defensive backs in training camp and have to be coaching them all. Um, in other in other positions where there's not as many guys, tight end, uh, running back, I don't think it's as essential. Jeff, before we let you go, I got to ask you the question that we kind of started with, and we got to end with it. So the reason why the Kardashian thing came up was because. <laughs> Paul Hudrick was wearing a Jurassic Park shirt earlier today. I complimented him uh-huh. on it. It was revealed that Broads has never seen any of the Jurassic movies at all. Oh. So I ask you, whose side are you on? Are you on with me and Paul that, you know, Jurassic Park, Jurassic World, 
or with Broads, who says, you know, keeping up the Kardashians, Love Island, etc. Yeah, sometimes I want to give Broads a free pass because I, I have to be reminded that a lot of things that were awesome in my life happened at a time where Broads was like either in the womb or still in diapers. <laughs> so I can't maybe expect him to like have had the same experience that I had. But then I step back and think, you know what? I wasn't alive when the Godfather trilogy came out and I still seen it. I wasn't alive when certain movies in the seventies uh, that were or even sixties were really popular. Any of those Christmas movies that everybody watched, but I've seen them. So I can't, um, I can't excuse Broads for not, at least seeing Jurassic Park and understanding how significant that movie was when it came out to what special effects were and, and changing the kind of the cinema. I don't want to say changing the game. Obviously star Wars helped do that, but it just took it to another level. They created living, walking, breathing dinosaurs and nobody had ever seen that on screen before. Yeah. But most you're forgetting you are totally just disregarding Snooki being hammered at the bar and JWoww having to go pick her up, bring her back to the smush room to make sure she was safe. There's so much you're missing out on from Jersey Shore perspective that I don't think you're doing it, you know, you're not doing it right. That's poison, man. That stuff is brain poison. Exactly. Right? Thank you, that's, Jeff. That's your problem. You've been poisoned by that, that stuff. Just straight trash, man. Trash. You should be ashamed of yourself. Straight trash, homie. I only saw I only saw the first two uh, seasons. <laughs> <laughs> he speaks from knowledge. Then he knows intimately how much trash it is. There you go. Uh, I used to actually have a beach house in Belmar, which was uh, you know back in my twenties, and which was right now, not Belmar, South Jersey, Belmar, which is right next to Seaside Heights. So I know all about those places that they were hanging out. Unfortunately. <laughs> Yeah, just just so you know, Jeff, Broads asked me what I was watching late at night, and I explained to him my lineup. And his next question was, "How much wine did I have?" And that's where that conversation went. So, yeah, I mean, nobody really should be comparing their 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 habits to you, Josh. No offense. I mean, you're you're a one of a kind type of person too. I take that as a compliment. How about that? <laughs> sure, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff. I appreciate the time and uh, entertaining us as well. No problem, guys. Have a good one. Jeff Mosher, football at four, powered by the Inside the Birds podcast. The latest episode dropped this morning. Of course, you got the next episode on Thursday morning. 7-3 ESPN. Of course, football at four being brought to you by Dr. Lyle M. Back. For everything from skincare to cosmetic surgery, go to ilovelyleback.com or call 856-MAKEOVER for Dr. Lyle M. Back, proud sponsor of football at four here on 97.3 ESPN Broad thoughts. I think that he's ridiculous. I think you're ridiculous. And I think Jersey Shore is fantastic television. Those are my thoughts. I've never watched an episode of Jersey Shore. Well, see, now that's where I have the problem. And nor you, will I. See, you can't bat see, I don't say Jurassic Park Jurassic Park is bad. I say I don't see it. For you to say Jersey Shore is bad and not even see it, that's where I have the problem. I'm with Jeff. It's just trash television. But you haven't seen it. But I don't need to see it to know what it is. Couple bottles of wine and Snooky. Now that's some entertainment. Listen, it's not like Snooky's sitting with me watching the show, okay? That'd be different. Yeah, you got a fair point. Listen, if I if I if I had a if I had a young lady watching something with me, that's one thing. I'm not gonna sit down and voluntarily but watch it. But you still wouldn't enjoy the show. If you don't enjoy the show. You're not going to enjoy the show. So you're telling me if you're with the female, now all of a sudden the show becomes more entertaining to you? 
well, there might be some conversational value that goes along with it. Oh, like there's no might, doubt there is. Like we might have some like psychological analysis going on of what I'm watching on the television. Then it's really less about the show than it's about the conversation with the person. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I absolutely acknowledge that. The other side of it is I have that conversation with myself when I'm watching it alone. So I still have that conversation. It's just solo. By the way, Chris Dunn on YouTube watching the show at 973 ESP says that's a crime. No Jurassic Park. No excuse, bro. There's billions of classic movies that I've never seen, and I'm fully okay with it. I, I don't watch classic. I don't watch movies. Movies are just, they're a waste of time for me. Waste of time. He's Hunter Brody. doesn't watch movies. I'm Josh Hennig, who does watch movies. Here, filling in for Mike Gill on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. We'll get back to more your texts and thoughts at 609-403-0973. And you watching on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter on 97.3 ESPN FM, the 97.3 ESPN mobile app powered by First Bank of Seattle City. Sports Bash here on 97.3 ESPN. Josh Hennig filling in for Mike Gill. Four o'clock hour of the sports bet being brought to you by Prop Swap. That's right. Prop Swap, America's sports betting marketplace. Sell your sports bet and take your profit. Find out how at PropSwap.com or by downloading the Prop Swap app today. 609-403-0973 is the text for to get on the conversation. Also, people watching on Facebook, YouTube. In Twitter, watching the show, uh, Chris Dunn followed up on his comment about Jurassic Park. He said, South Park had the greatest Jersey Shore episode ever. They had been lying together the Jersey Shore cast. That was actually pretty funny. I think I've seen that clip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, d- I did see the clip going around before. Pretty funny. I feel like South Park, now this may offend some people. So South Park is funny, but it's not as funny as like the diehard South Park people like to say it is. Like, it's funny, but let me be realistic with you. I don't watch every South Park episode, but I guarantee you certain South Park episodes fall flat. No, I agree with you. I, I, I think that is a very good assessment. It's funny. It will make you laugh. It is not to the extreme that the South Park fans make it out to be. Right. Like, for example, I think that as, as a whole, for example, I think Family Guy is funny funnier than South Park no as a whole. Doubt. No doubt about it. But because South Park does a lot of parody, some of those episodes are epically hilarious. While other episodes are, eh. Meanwhile, yeah. Family Guy, I've never seen a bad Family Guy episode. Yeah, no, the South Park is, is like weird funny to me. It's funny, but it's a weird funny. Family Guy is just hysterical. It's yeah. so, it's so, oh man. It's so I haven't watched it in so long. Now you almost have my head spinning to the point where I think I need to dive into go some back and watch them. Dive into some Family Guy. Go. I might transition from a little, maybe take a break from Love Island season six and move on to a little Family Guy just for a little break. I approve of this choice. Okay, just uh, for maybe a day or two. By the way, Jeff Bone and Pookie chimes in. I'm gonna go overthrow the Empire and destroy the Death Star. Y'all need anything? Uh yeah. Can can you uh, bring me some uh, speed cruisers? Bros is what you love to all about. So Star Wars. Yeah, Star Wars. There you go. I'm, at least, at least you I don't know. live under a rock. I mean, I'm, I'm aware of this stuff. I just don't watch it. I, what I do watch, though, is UFC 258. Yes, you did. So did I. Yeah, so my takeaways. It was an okay card. Okay. I think it's in between two fantastic cards. When they showed 259, I almost fell over. I know. You texted me. You're like, oh, my. Yeah, you were look, freaking out. Yeah, look at that card. Yeah. But the, I thought the Usman Burns fight, at first, 
the first round, when you saw Burns give a good right hook, how do you do? And Usman stumbled. It's like, hold on, are we in for a treat? And then Usman kind of made the adjustment. The jabs came into play. Didn't fall into what, what Burns wanted him to do, which was get on the ground. And those jabs and switching to southpaw and all that, that was the difference. But I did think for a moment there, hold on for a second. Do we have a treat? But no, domination occurred. And uh, I, I thought it was entertaining, though. What what were your overall thoughts on the on the main the main fight the main event? I thought the main event was everything you would hope it would be. It had it had a roller coaster of emotions. It had drama. You didn't have a guy just like dominating the whole fight. You know he had a champion's heart. He overcame adversary adversity. He figured out how to get through the situation. I love the fact that he dominated with his jab. I love the fact that Burns said come to the ground. He's like nope, not doing that because I know I'm not putting in a position for you to beat me. I'm dictating the terms of this fight. The moment that Burns said, come to the ground, and Usman said no, I was like, Usman's winning this fight. Don't you think that Burns should have had, and maybe he did and it failed, but should have had an adjustment if, okay, if he doesn't commit to getting on the ground, what do I do? It was almost as if, I don't know, if did he have a backup plan? You would think that well, there is that, a backup well, plan. That's part of the problem because Usman left their camp for this fight. He said, Burns, you can stay at our camp. But I'm going to go to Trevor Whitman. And Trevor Whitman's a master strategist. He's one of the best strategists in all of MMA. So that guy went to Usman and said, here's the game plan. Here's plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D. And you know what they did? They went from plan A to plan B. They need to go to plan C because Burns didn't have a plan B, plan C. Now, with Burns afterwards, he was clearly emotional. Yes. For me, I'll be honest with you. Maybe this is me being outrageous. But I thought it was a little too emotional. It's like, yo, dude, you got popped. You lost to, you lost to Usman. All right, you lost. It's not like you lost to some nobody. You lost to Usman. Now, I understand that he felt like this was his moment, and it, and it, he lost. He lost his moment. He had the chance, and he missed the opportunity. But I did right. think that there was almost too much emotion into it, too much crying for my liking. Now that just shows you how much he cares and he's passionate. But I thought it hit the line. It passed the line of too much crying. Well, here's part of the reason why. All right. Remember, if you remember my conversation with uh, Usman, when I said to him, hey, you're 33, but you're not an old 33, okay? You're not somebody that's been fighting for a super long time. Burns is a year older than Usman, and he has way more fights on his resume. There's a party that has to wonder, did Burns view this as his best shot at the UFC gold? Now, say he can't bounce back, but was a part of the reason why he was emotional, maybe, was because... He says that the light again in the tunnel is coming faster than I wanted to admit. And, and I think that that's the answer is yes. I think we can all kind of watch that and say, yeah, the answer is probably yes. He saw that as the chance. And because it was that premier chance and he fell short that he was disappointed about it. I, I was almost questioning because Usman landed some really good punches when he was on the ground there. And I was just wondering, maybe he was out of it as if he was just out. he was blacked out almost, and maybe he wasn't aware that he was that emotional. Maybe not. You know, maybe maybe there was a, a a part of him that was separated from the moment emotionally. I, I'm not going to hold it against. No, him. no, 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 no. Look, I was entertained by the fight. You saw. What were your thoughts though when you did see him land that right to stumble Usman? Did you think there was a a chance here? I mean, you've you've watched a lot where you realize the swings can happen, and you know these fighters can find a way to regroup themselves after something like that. But for Usman to get clocked that early on, that's pretty shocking to most watching. So to me, as a someone who watches as much as I do and is observing sport, to me, there's a huge difference between stumbling on your feet 
and you get knocked to the ground. The fact that he didn't get put flat on his rear told me that he was still in the fight. Now, if Burns would have popped him a few more times and he's still wobbly, then I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. But a couple of those shots, it's not a fight. Like, for example, famously or infamously, depending on what side of you were when you fight went down, years ago when Frank Yeager had his wars with Gray Maynard, and Gray Maynard had this one shot where he blasted him in the face, and Frank Yeager goes backwards, ate as a somersault to get himself back onto his feet. But you were like, whoa, like he got hit so hard, he had to do a somersault to get back on his feet. You were like, well, wait a minute, something's going on here. And then Edgar kind of like Gator, uh, Gray Maynard gassed himself out and he came back. That is one thing. I never saw a moment where Usman was completely in trouble. Like he was, he was staggered. He was stumbled. The power really shook him. But it was kind of like almost like a woke up the cobwebs a little bit. Yeah, yeah, like a like a quick stun, but not a major stun. And he it even, was kind of like when you when you played hockey, you know, maybe you're you know lollygagging through the first period, then you get hit into the boards, and you should kind of like, all right, I'm in the game now. Yeah, it gets you focused for sure. And and even Usman mentioned that afterwards that a lot of the like that shot he took, he said a lot of people would probably be knocked out after that one. And you know, he obviously he's gonna say that because he thinks of himself very highly. But oh, what did you think of? The Masvidal call-out afterwards. Do you think Masvidal is the next good fight? The last time they fought, he had about six days to prepare for it, and it wasn't much of a contest. What is next for Usman? Do you think that it was the right move to call out Masvidal? It was the right move because he had to call out somebody. It'll sell, don't here's, you think? It, well, it was, so here's the thing. When you go through the UFC rankings right now, the majority of the guys who are ranked highly are all guys that Usman has already beat. And that's part of the problem for any fight promoter when it comes, I'm just saying a general principle, any fight promoter when it comes to trying to shape the future of selling fights, it's, you got to have a sellable fight. And the problem is, is that nobody wants to see a rematch with Burns anytime soon. We want Burns to go find himself again and then work his way back up. Nobody is really interested in seeing Leon Edwards, even though he probably deserves a chance. That's not going to sell anything. But, Covington and Masvidal are going to sell. And when Usman called out Masvidal, that was his way of saying, I'm here to sell fights. you got to promote yourself. you got to sell yourself. you got to give the audience a reason to tune back in. And we all know that, you know, that incident happened down in Miami last Super Bowl week when Masvidal and Usman were chirping at each other. And then the fight eventually happened. And as you've mentioned, look, that wasn't the most exciting fight. For Usman in the world. Not like he went out there and dominated. He just leaned on him and stomped on his foot half the time. I think it's a part of Usman and Masvidal who both want to show that they are more than that result. That pay-per-view did 1.3 million pay-per-view buys. Would you anticipate that going up or around the same thing? Uh, you think even even higher? Because if you have time to promote it and build That's it true. up, That's then, true. then you're going to get more Well, I, who was supposed to fight Usman that was Supposed week? to be Burns. Oh, that, that was the Burns when that got canceled. Because Correct. Burns okay. tested positive That's for right. COVID. That's right. And they wouldn't let him fly to Abu Dhabi at all. So Masvidal was the only guy who had tested clean and was available on short notice. Because what he did is he says, I'm going to keep training. I'm going to keep testing in the system. So if you need me, I'll be there. And it was just on Usman that you know sign off on it at right. that point. Yeah, that's correct. Because this is the there's been a couple of times they tried to get this Burns Usman fight. Right. Down. This was the third time. So the first time was uh, Burns tested positive for COVID last summer. They tried again in December. Then Usman had what is speculated as a shoulder injury. We don't know for sure exactly what kind of injury, but it was some sort of injury he had to pull out for. 
and then they rescheduled it for this past weekend. They finally got the fight to happen. Now, I've been here for two years, right? Here at 97.3 ESPN. Are you impressed with the uh, with the UFC growth here? Like, look at us. Here we are talking the main card, the main event. Here I am after every event. When we talked this morning, you called me before I even got to the studio. We were just talking about some things with the show. And naturally, we just get sidetracked into this UFC conversation. Are you impressed with uh, with the jump here? I mean, there was a time. And when it happened, what I know where the shift occurred. No sports were on. UFC was the only sporting event live. And I told you to sit down and, I, and, and watch I, it. And I watched it. And that kind of gained my my uh, my interest in it. But I will say, now that I'm watching some of the older events, I can't wait until I get to experience it with this type of knowledge with it. Not that I'm anywhere crazy, but I'm clearly learning the game and, and I'm appreciating it you more. Have, you have much more invested now. Yeah, definitely. But I, I when I go back now and watch fights, because I have the uh, UFC fight pass, the fans, man, I, I really want to see that. Like I was watching last night because they didn't have anything where they were this past. No, they weekend. were at the apex, right? But prior, when they were on the island, they they had fans in there, and even that minor amount made such a difference to my viewing experience. Oh, it, it definitely draws a lot of juice. Listen, I was in Philadelphia uh, back was it twenty eleven when it was uh, the main event was Tito Ortiz versus Rashad Evans, two former champions who were coming off of some tough times and were trying to rebound their careers. And even for a fight that didn't have no belt on the line or anything, just a solid, good fight card, the place was electric. When I was in Atlantic City a few years ago, when it was um, uh, it was Kevin Lee versus Edson Barbosa was the main event. The co-main event was Frank Yeager versus Cub Swanson. In the prelims, the building was 66% full. And it was loud. And it got even the peak of the, of the loudness when Frank Yeager walked to the octagon, because Jersey's own, you're in Atlantic City. There is something to be said for the juice of a great event, sporting wise, whether it's the Super Bowl, a big UFC fight, um, you know, whatever it may be, the fans make the difference. I agree 100%. So, what did, how would you rate this card, one to 10? Because I thought the co main was okay. I thought the co main was definitely intriguing enough for my liking. I thought the first fight was good, the co main. And the main event was, I lived up the expectations, but I, I wouldn't say it was a great card. So am I grading it on just the main card? Just the yes, part? Yes, just the main card. I would give it a, I would give it a B minus because I felt it was top heavy. I felt like that the main event and the co-main event both paid were payoffs. You know what I mean? They, you got your money's worth with those. But the other three fights, not so much. And I would have liked to have seen... I feel the UFC, as you just said, this was the card before the big card. They could have put another fight on this card to give it a little more, more juice. But sometimes things don't pan out that way. Sometimes the schedule don't, don't work out the way you always want it. Um, I, I, to be at the co-main event, I thought that Barber and Grasso lived up the expectations to me. I was talking about that might be the fight, that made the best fight on the card. And I think it definitely delivered as well. I did think it was interesting that Macy Barber tried to finish the fight in the third, and she almost did. Uh, but Alexa Grasso, she's definitely grown a lot in her fighting skills. We saw Gastelum before that have a dominating performance, get a win. You know, people forget that Gastelum has been uh, a contender for the, the championship belt. So he's no pushover. Uh, but I agree with what your sentiment was. A lot of people said, I saw this online a lot. 
there is a perception, whether it's real or legitimate, that this was the card before the card, that this was the filler. This was the the fight that's going to get you to the super card that is UFC 259 with not one, not two, but three events, super events on the card. Obviously, you got the, the champ versus the champ, Adesanya versus Blakowicz. You have the women's fight, Nunez versus Anderson. That's a fight everybody wants to see because Nunez hasn't been really chilly challenged at this point, aside from Shevchenko. And people are hoping that Megan Anderson can be that challenge to her. And then you got 135. You know, the guys who throw punches at 200 miles an hour. It's Jan versus Sterling. By the way, Sterling from North Jersey, New York. How about that? Now, I, I do want to throw this your way. I heard a lot about how, and, and there's two ways to kind of look at it. Because there's so many UFC events that this could compare to like a UFC fight night card this past 258. This could be equivalent to a UFC fight night card and not so much a pay-per-view event. Would you disagree or agree with that? Because it's pay-per-view is what you're saying. Yeah. That that the the money aspect has an element of Right, but the way the way you can look at it is if you can relate this to a UFC fight night card, it's almost impressive where the sport has grown that, wow, you're comparing this pay-per-view event to a fight night card. Like, that's pretty impressive to show the growth of the fight night, but it also shows the watered-downness of the of UFC as well. Like you, it depends on how you view it, what I you're using to, to right, look well, at that Well, it's two statement. sides of the same coin. Yeah. It's, you're giving people the content. You're giving people the fights. You're giving more fighters opportunity to make money, but then you're also not always drawing everybody in for every fight card. And I think that does have an element of, like you said, watered down at times. But I think overall, the UFC is in a good place overall. Oh, no doubt. I just think that, like you said, the growth effect people are actually interested in the fight nights and the pay-per-views is a big deal. I think it also helps the fact that ESPN is promoting it and Fox before it. You know, before UFC went to Fox and now ESPN, they were on Spike TV. Yeah. You know, and let's be realistic. Unless you were a diehard, you looked at Spike TV, and eh, whatever. Pay-per-views had to be a super card for you to even care. Now... People are invested. You know who the fighters are. You know who the events are. You know who the players are. You have more invested and interest in it because of the monster promoting it that is ESPN. As much of a UFCsman as I am, I will say, I'm, I'm not diehard early prelim guy yet. I still need to work on that. Are, are you every single prelim fight guy where you watch every single prelim fight for these main events, for these main cards, or no? Um... I mean, I'm watching no matter what, but I will admit there are days that it, it might not be on the main screen. Okay. Some of the fights, I, I do admit, I'm not always 100% I find in, myself invested. tuning in at 10. Like, I find myself being the guy where it's like, okay, the main card is starting. Like, I'm throwing it on at 10 o'clock. So I used to be the guy who watched every prelim. I used to be. And now, because of where the sport has gotten to, there are some of the prelims I'm just not as interested in. I'm really not. I'll watch, you know, on the big screen, I'll watch an NBA game or I'll watch Serena Williams at the Australian Open or I'll I'll have something else on the big screen because that fight just, I, I know what it is. It's filler. Yeah. You know, it's a fighter being given an opportunity to get a fight and make a name for themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. But 
I'm sorry, even as a diehard that I am, I can't be interested in every single fight. Just like when it comes to hockey, you're not watching every single hockey game as intently as other games. Right, like if the Ducks were playing the Kings and it's midnight, that's probably just background noise that I'm falling asleep to. That's similar to the prelim fight for you. Some of them, yeah. And by the way, main event fights too. There are some main event fights that I'm just like, I'm not, not doing much. I would never. Not me. I'm a little surprised by that statement out of you. So main events are like, eh? They're not main event, main card fights. Like, you know, the second or third fight on the main oh, card yeah, yeah, yeah. might not have the juice. Right, right, right. No, I can get behind that. I main event, I'm always there. Yeah, I'm like, hold on but a second. Like, You're not watching but, the main event here. No, no, but the two fights before, yeah. I, I'm, I might not be fully in No, this. that's fine. I can get behind that. I can. He's Hunter Brody. I'm Josh Hennick here on the Sports Bash on 97.3 ESPN. Four o'clock hours Sports Bash being brought to you by Prop Swap America's Sports betting marketplace sell your sports bets take your profit find out more at propswap.com or by downloading the prop swap app today